Am I on? There we go. Well, open your Bibles this morning to James chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the third chapter of James in the time that we have left in chapel. Thanks, Mark, for reminding us of what is about to take place in the missions area. And thank you for a fine job that you're doing this year in that regard as well. And thanks, uh, wasn't that really good? I mean, Christy, Mark, Greg, and Trevor, three people from the same family. We had the Welch family last week up here singing and the Mull family this week. We have some really talented families. I think the only thing that I and my two brothers did well together was fight and watch television, I believe. I don't think we did anything else well at all. What a blessing. James chapter 3. I'm just curious before we get started, how many of you, I want to hear by your applause, how many of you really like the cold, windy weather that we're having? Yeah. <laughs> can't believe it. All right, let me, let, the, the rest of you, how many of you don't like it? Let me hear you. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, I am not used to this. Okay. James chapter 3. Well, you, if you know anything about me, one thing that I like to do is tell college stories myself. And um, I'm going to start this morning with another one. When um, my wife and I started dating, my girlfriend and I started dating, who eventually became my wife, uh, in 1976, that was the year that a very uh, famous book now, uh, what is really considered a classic, came out, and that is the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And um, one, one afternoon, I decided to go to a bookstore one Saturday afternoon to buy my girlfriend a copy of this book that had just come out that everybody was talking about. So I went, to the, went down to the mall in my Volkswagen that my dad, my, this is my freshman year, my dad had sprung for $150 to buy me this, this Volkswagen. It was kind of the forerunner to a Charlie Crowfoot vehicle, I think. And, uh, and in $150, I was elated. I was a poor a college student, the first date Kim and I had together, I think I've mentioned to you that I went and gave plasma so I could get $18 to take her out to dinner. It was really a tough time for me. <laughs> Honest truth. And we didn't have red meat, I guarantee you, when we ate. Um, I was really poor, and I had this Volkswagen that hardly ever ran. Every time we took a trip, Kim was always giving me a hard time about a breaking down. And, and But I loved it. I mean, it got me around. It was a blessing from God. And and you know what it's like to not have wheels. It was a really, it's a drag when you're in college. And so I went to the mall in my Volkswagen, and on the way back, on this one-way, four-lane street, I'm in the far left-hand lane, and there's nobody in sight, nobody at all, except for one truck who pulls out of a hospital, a, a brand new, one of, those, one of those king cab things that they had just started building, one of these real long, had this big heavy-duty utility bumper. I mean, a beautiful, brand-new truck. Didn't even have the license plate on it yet. Still had the temporary tags. He pulls out, and he's in the far right-hand lane of the four lanes, and nobody's in front of us, nobody's behind us. And all of a sudden, this guy decides to make a left-hand turn on a street that goes this way off of the four lane from his lane. And he turns right, didn't see me at all, he turned right into me, tore off two of my two... If you know anything about Volkswagen, you can kick a Volkswagen fender pretty good and it'll fall off. But this, one, this guy hit my Volkswagen, the two fenders ripped off as he ripped into the side of my car. My door came off. I went onto the sidewalk and I'm trying to dodge telephone poles as I was going down to the sidewalk. We were, it's about a 50 mile an hour speed limit. I didn't think anything of it. Well, the guy was guilty. He, was, he had just been to the hospital. He had been drinking heavily. When he got out of the, the uh, pickup truck, it was very obvious that he had had something to drink. And so I didn't think a whole lot of it. I thought, well, the police came by. They gave him a ticket and everything was okay. 
But a few weeks later, I got a, an announcement in the mail, a letter in the mail, telling me that I had to appear in court. And so I did that. And again, I had never, I don't know about you, but I had never been through that experience. And so I didn't think a whole lot of that either. I went by myself, caught a bus from the college, went down to the, the uh, courthouse and went to court. And uh, was sitting there in a room of, full of people as they waited for their time to come up and stand before the judge. And, and I waited for my time as well. And it was packed that day, as probably is always packed. I'd just never been there. And so as I get my time to come up, there were three people in that truck, and I was by myself, and there were no other witnesses. And, and that didn't cross my mind as being a problem. I mean, it, to me, it just seemed like it was a very clear situation. So I walked up and the, stood before the judge. The other gentleman stood before the judge with his two friends that were in the pickup truck with him, and they brought an attorney. And I had never thought about that. I didn't, and even if I had, I wasn't about to give enough plasma to buy an attorney. So I was there by myself. And so there's, there is little old freshman Dave who just had his $150 Volkswagen ripped up, standing there, totally naive. I'd never been to court, didn't think anything about what was going to go here. And they got a ticket, and I thought I was okay. And here are these three people in this pickup with an attorney. And this attorney is the, is the attorney that is the, the ultimate stereotype. The kind of guy that when you see television and they want to present a stereotypical type of attorney, this was the guy. I mean, he stood up in my face, real young guy, had his hair slicked back, and one of those, one of those suits that shines. You know, I don't know what they're made of, but it just shines. The whole thing shines. So from his hair to his feet, this guy is just shining. His teeth are shining, you know, Mr. Pearl Drop. And he's all over me. And he's yelling, and he gets into my face, and says, isn't it true, Mr. Maddox, that on the said day of... I have no idea what the guy is saying. He's talking so fast, and he's going through all this. He's confusing me. And, and I look confused, and I look nervous, and I'm, and I'm really, really uh, scared at this point. I had no idea what to do. And the judge saw that I was nervous, and, but the guy just kept pursuing me, and I mean just kept asking me with a barrage of questions, trying to trip me or trying to trap me into my words. Oh, so you did this. And, and I can't remember all the details, but I just remember it was one of the scariest things that I've ever faced at that time in my life, standing there not knowing even what the implications of this whole ordeal would be. And so after they talked for quite some time, and then he interviewed, the attorney did his three clients, and he asked me all these questions, and the judge asked me to explain my side of the story, which I did, very, very sheepishly, very nervously, and fumbling over my words, I said, well, Your Honor, sir, uh, the officer did this, uh, or I did this, this gentleman who was driving this pickup truck did this, the officer came up, and he wrote out a ticket, and he said this, and that's all I know. And then the attorney said one last thing to the judge. He gets right up to the bench, the judge, walks up to him and says, Judge, I just want you to know that, that uh, I went to school, and he named some school, and he said, and my best friend was, was Thomas Johnson. And uh, he says, and I want you to know that these are, fine young, these are fine citizens, taxpayers of our community, and uh, I just want you to know that I believe in their innocence. And the judge, as, again, a stereotypical move, takes back in his chair, takes his glasses off, and he says, well, you know, Thomas, the, the man that you just mentioned, is my best friend. And it's interesting, I didn't know that the two of you went together. And yes, these three people are taxpayers, and, uh, and that is true. And I also want you to know the third thing, I find your clients guilty. And, and that's, exactly, that's exactly what the audience did that day. They clapped, and I'm sitting there going, yeah, yeah, you know. And, and then the judge went on to explain this, and it was really very fascinating. And everybody is kind of just dumbfounded. Why in the world did the judge rule in, in my favor and against these three witnesses? And this is what the judge said. He said, you know, you learn a lot about people by listening to the way they talk. He says, I sat here and listened to you and your clients talk. They talked about the cop. 
They talked about the 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 this kid, and you pointed and he pointed to me. He talked he talked to me, judge, rather than saying your honor. He said all these words, the way that they refer to each other, the way they refer to David, the way, the way they addressed me, the way they re- addressed Officer Smith, the way they talked in the, the entire time they were up here gave me a clear indication that they have no respect of people. He said, you can learn an awful, awful lot about the way people talk and about their language. And this morning, that is exactly the point that we're going to look at in James chapter 3. You know and I know that in the Gospels, Jesus Christ said the exact same thing that this judge said. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And there is no question, as we look in the Scriptures, one of the things that we learn about the tongue is it is the telltale of the heart. One writer said this, it is the showcase of the soul. And I think that that is definitely something that not only a unsaved, an unsaved judge would acknowledge, but I think that it's something that each one of us in this room would acknowledge as well. If you really want to know someone, don't come into chapel and watch them stand as we all stand and sing hymns and, and give worship and glory to God. Don't watch them necessarily in other, other controlled, formal, public settings. If you really want to know someone and really want to know where their heart is, watch them in their discretionary time. Watch them in the dormitories. Watch them in the classroom. Watch them in the dining hall. Watch them as they walk the campus. Watch them on Friday night when they're out together in a gang and listen to the words that they use. Because I think that all of us would agree that the greatest indicator that any of us could use, greatest barometer that any of us could refer to that would indicate what is genuinely in our heart is the way that we use our tongue. Right? I think that it's definitely something that the Scriptures speak to very clearly. And James is doing the same thing. And James' point, as you know, is a very familiar book and a very familiar theme. His theme is very simple. True believers will manifest their new life in Christ by the way they live. I mean, James' point is very simple, and he repeats it over and over and over again in different ways. In chapter 1, he says the new life will be evident in the fact that we endure trials. In chapter 2, he goes on to develop his theme by saying the new life will be evident in our concern, a loving concern for the needy, as he concludes that chapter. In chapter 4, he says that our new life in Christ will be evident in, the, in our willingness to submit to God in everyday affairs. And then in chapter 5, he says our new life will be evident in the fact that we're able to exercise patience and endurance in the face of distress and stress. And so James goes all the way through his book, 1, 2, 4, and 5, and he says these are all good indicators of your life in Jesus Christ, and they'll be evident in your behavior. And then in the middle of all that, in chapter 3, he talks about the tongue. And James, because I think that he is saying that, look, there is a, an essential connection between faith and works, one thing that he doesn't want us to get confused about is that somehow the behavior, the external things, are the most important. And we, you know, being here at the Master's College, that we hammer on that over and over and over again. We do not want anyone to think that the external aspects of Christianity are the most important things in the world. And James says the same thing. The most important thing is what's in the heart. But... If you want to take a look in the heart, which you and I cannot do literally, the one of the ways that we can do that is to look at the words that we use, and that is James's point. In fact, he is very concerned in his epistle that we don't miss the point that the tongue is very critical. In chapter 1, he mentions it in verses 19 and 26. In chapter 2, he mentions it again in verse 12. In chapter 4, he mentions it in verse 11. In chapter 5, he mentions it in verse 12. And then in chapter 3, he devotes almost an entire chapter to the tongue. James, obviously, is very committed 
that the people that he is addressing, and by the way, this is what is called an, a general epistle. It's one of the nine books of the New Testament that were written to the churches at large, not to one specific church. The message of these epistles, such as James, applies to all of us, uh, not, not in a way that the rest of them don't apply to all of us, but it is not a response to a specific historical event. It is something that is, that is coming from the pen of the writer and from the mind of God that God wants to communicate to all of us because it is a very, very important need. And that is what James is doing. But the second thing, look at, I want you to see one other thing. Look at chapter 1, verse 26. The second thing, though, is that he's not just writing in general to Christians, but he's writing to what he is calling religious people. The religious people. And, you know, the word religious could be used in a bad way, but in a positive way, the word, the Greek term, threskos, is also used to mean this. And, and I wrote this down as a definition that I got from one of the books that I had in my library. It says, threskos, or religious individual, is one who stands in all of God and is tremendously scrupulous in the observance of spiritual exercise in both word and action. That is who James is addressing. James is addressing Christians in general, but even within the church in general, he is addressing a specific group of people. And that is that group within the church that is committed to knowing God and committed to knowing what it means to live out their faith in their everyday life. I would say that that pretty well, pretty much describes us as well. Not just the, the people that James is intending to address, but I think that it, it, it certainly uh, hits us directly as well here at the Master's College. You are here because you have expressed a desire in your heart and taken action on that desire to come to a college to know what it means to love God, to know what it means to live that love out in your relationships around you and in your decisions and in your discernment and in your choices and in your thoughts in every part of your life that is why you've come here. And that's exciting because that's exactly you are exactly the group that, that James has addressed here. And in doing that, addressing us, James says, look, as you think about what it means to live out your faith in Jesus Christ, remember that your faith in Christ will alter your behavior. And one of the key elements of your behavior is how you talk. And as he's on that theme, he comes to chapter 3, and he says, but as we're talking about the tongue, there are six warnings that I want to give you about the tongue. There are six things that I don't want you to miss. There are six cautions that I want to give every Christian. And I particularly want to give these cautions to Christians who are really in their heart desiring to know what it means to genuinely walk in the love of God. Because it is you sometimes, it is that very group sometimes that misses the message that James has to give in chapter 3 and overlooks the warnings that James lays out before us in chapter 3. And that's what we want to do this morning in the, in the time that we have left, is to look at these six cautions or these six warnings that James gives all of us in the use of our tongue. And you say, well, Dave, why, why did you choose this subject? I think that as I've listened thus far uh, to feedback from students around the campus, from my staff, from talking to faculty members, from talking to other students in the dorms, if there is one issue that has occurred over and over and over again already this semester, it is the issue of the way people are talking to each other. And it has been a, almost a constant thing, almost daily in my office, where one student is in there not whining and not tattletaling and not giving names, but in there saying, you know, Dave, I am really concerned about someone that I know. And, and when that happens to me, and it happens to Betty and the RDs, 
there generally, if ever, is a name given. In this case, in the cases that I've had so far, there isn't a name given, so I don't know who you are. But I do know this, that a lot of students have expressed to me that there is a real, real trouble on this campus by the way the students are using their mouths and the way they're addressing each other. And as they sit in the dining halls and listen to the words that are selected and listen to the, the tone of voice that are used and as students talk to each other in the dormitories, there's a real, real concern for that. And it's not just a concern. We don't want as a student life department to respond to that and say, well, let's, let's, put, down some, let's put down some discipline or let's put down some barriers or let's put down some, something that will clean up the act on the part of the students so that they don't talk like this. I mean, we could do that or at least we could try to do that. But that's not the point. Our response wants to be the same response that James had to that issue. And that is, look, guys, gals, what we all need to be reminded of is that if we're really, truly wanting to live for God, and that's who we say we are, and that's, who we, that's what we say is dwelling inside our heart, then one of the things that we need to be looking at is, is the way we're talking. Because it's going to be one of the key indicators of what is really, really going on in our relationship with Christ. And so I want to give you those six warnings this morning. Let's pray together before we do that. Father, Lord, in the next few minutes that we have, help us to look into your word. Lord, as, as we've already uh, seen, that the word of God is something that is sharp. It cuts to the very core of who we are. It is like a mirror that allows us to see who we truly are in our relationship with you. Lord, help us this morning as we look at these six cautions, these six warnings that James gives us in chapter 3 of his book, that, that our minds and hearts would be opened by the Holy Spirit. Lord, this just isn't something that we're doing this morning uh, that just to take up a time slot, but we're really concerned that we as your people who have come together in community will live in a way that will honor and glorify you. Lord, help us to do that this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you would look, at, if you're not there, you should be there. In James chapter three, look at verse one. I want to begin there, and we'll look kind of rapidly through the first twelve verses of that chapter. James begins by saying, "Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur, incur a stricter judgment." This is the first warning that I want to give you from James, that I think that James is giving all of us. It is no, there is no doubt that in this particular verse, the specific group that he has in mind are leaders, translated other places, masters or teachers. Some people believe that he is addressing formal instructors in the church, maybe possibly elders or deacons. And there's no question that when James was writing this particular general epistle, that one of the problems in the New Testament church was that there were people who took on the mantle of leadership and eldership very frivolously without really thinking through the implication of what it meant to stand up before a group of people and exhort them to walk in holiness. And there's no question that that is James's specific intention here. But I want to go beyond that a little bit and to address the principle. Because I think the principle, while all of us are not going to be elders and all of us aren't going to be teachers, the principle that James is addressing here I think applies to everyone in this room. And this is the principle. And that is that the tongue in speaking is an opportunity for us that can be used for either good or bad. I mean, that's the first caution that I think James is giving us. Our speech is something that gives us an opportunity to use it for something either good or for something bad. Now, you know and, and I know that, that God has given us 
as Christians a great opportunity to use our mouth. And one of the ways he does that is he calls us into relationship with each other. At times we call that fellowship. At times we call that community. At times we call that a church. At times we call that a family. And at times we call that a college. But in all of those relationships and all of those all of those categories that I just mentioned, you and I, because of us coming together, are around each other and communicating with each other. And God designed it that way. It was God's idea to put into place the dynamics of community living. That was His thought. That wasn't something that we dreamt up. God believed that by having us interact with each other, having us come into contact with each other, that you and I could minister to one another and promote Christ-likeness in each other. I mean, that was God's idea. And because it is His idea, He is very much for us living in community. And so what we're trying to do here at the Master's College is definitely a, a natural and normal outgrowth of what God's Word lays out before us as far as Christian fellowship. And because of fellowship and because of community, being in part of all of that gives you and me a great opportunity to use our mouth. Right? I mean, it's certainly different than if we were sitting out on a hillside somewhere or living in isolation in a field or living somewhere in the middle like I used to live in Iowa where sometimes there isn't a, the next house is miles away. I mean, that's not the kind of life that we're living. The life that we're living right now is the life that looks like what we see right before us, and that is people all around us. And particularly at this time in your life in a college, that is very true. You have all kinds of opportunities to use your tongue in a way that would profit those that hear you. And God designed it that way. In fact, one person that I read said that in an average day, you and I use somewhere between 15 and 25,000 words a day. Now, if you figure that up and multiply that times 75 years, which would be the biblically laid out lifespan, we're approaching close to a billion words in our lifetime. And God doesn't want us to just waste those words. He wants you and I to live in community so that those words that we use will profit those who hear us. And the Scripture talks a lot about that, and we're not going to take time to, to develop that thought, but just leave it at this, that God intends us to use those words, those one billion words in a lifetime, to edify those around us. And He talks about that in Ephesians 4, to bring healing to those around us, to bring encouragement to those who hear us, to bring things that will lift people up, that will give people strength, that will give people hope, that will give people an understanding that they can know Christ, that they can live for Christ in the way that God asked us to do. I mean, that was the intention of God. And that's why we come together in community. And that's how community is intended to function as God designed it. And so an opportunity to speak is definitely an opportunity to do good. But, and I think this is the point of verse 1 here, whenever you're given an opportunity to talk, it certainly can be used for something that will bring people closer to Christ, but it also, at the same time, increases your opportunity to sin. And therefore, at the same time, increases the possibility that you may be heaping and piling judgment upon yourself. You understand that? There's a kind of a sweet and sour, kind of a good and bad, kind of a pretty and ugly to this ordeal. Community is good in that it gives you an opportunity to use your mouth to build up. But community is also bad in that it gives you a lot more opportunities than you may have in isolation, or certainly you would have in isolation, to hurt people, to tear down, to destroy, to damage, to break, to defile. And so all of these things that I just mentioned, the home, while God certainly through the home gives me an opportunity, my wife an opportunity, and 
to, to minister to each other. It's also a very real opportunity for us to violate, violate each other constantly because I can't get away from my wife and she can't get away from me. We're in, around each other all the time. And every time we have contact with each other, it's either a context for me to do something that would promote the life of Christ within her or something that would maybe be an opportunity for me to destroy that spark that is within her. And the same is true of you. Being a part of a community college, you have great opportunity to take that privilege and take this time of your life to look around you and say, man, I, I'm going to use my 25,000 words that I'm using every day to touch somebody with the life of Jesus Christ. And what a privilege, what an opportunity to live in community like this. But the downside of that is it's also increasing your ability to destroy people, to hurt people, to, to, to really push them away from Christ and to make Jesus Christ unattractive. And because you have greater opportunity to do that, James says, you're also facing a greater opportunity to bring judgment upon yourself. And so the first warning that James gives us, I think, is very clear. Listen, be warned, Christian, who desires to love God. When I give you an opportunity to talk, it increases the possibility that you can contribute to the kingdom of God, but at the same time, it's increasing the possibility that you're going to be a destructive element in my work. That's the first warning. And I think it's a warning that we need to all be very mindful of. Because in the final analysis... Jesus Christ goes on to say there will come a day when God will kind of play back the tape player on this massive human reel-to-reel and He's going to replay the words that you and I chose to use. That's going to be a part of the judgment that God will have us stand before Him in. Morning number one. An opportunity to speak is an opportunity for good or bad. Morning number two. Look at verse two. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man or a mature man and able to bridle the whole body as well. This is what I think is the second warning in verse 2. And let me just put it in a, in a general principle. The tongue is the most difficult member, according to James, to control. Now, you've got to ask, now, why is that? And I think that it is simply this, that of all the parts of your body and all the parts of my body, the one member of my body that is, that is immediately available to live out my sinfulness is my tongue. It is there instantaneously. There is such a short path between my heart and my tongue, it's, almost, it's, it's, it's scary at times. And that is James's point. Listen, warning number two, you need to know that the tongue is the hardest member of the body control. And the reason it's the hardest member of the body control because it is so available to your sin. It is something that your sin can direct at any time, in any place, and at any person. There's literally nothing that you and I cannot say. I mean, there may be times that we don't have the opportunity to steal because of accountability. There may be times that you and I may not have the opportunity to be involved in other forms of immorality, sexual immorality, or, or other things. But you can never say that I don't have the opportunity to use my mouth. You always do. It is always available for your sin. And James brings us that to us in the form, I believe, of a warning to let us know that, look, because it is so available to your sin and so immediately accessible to be an expression of your sin, it is very, very, it is the last member, the hardest member to control. And I think that is his thing. And, and it's interesting, I think, that what James is also trying to say here is that because you and I in our fallenness, our selfish people, 
one of the ways that our selfishness is going to be very readily seen is going to be in the way we use our mouth. And if there's anything that we can bring to our attendance and bring to our aid to help us accomplish our selfish ends, generally the thing that we'll bring most frequently and most quickly is our tongue. It's, Charles Swindoll, he tells a very interesting story about in the early pioneer days of the West that there was a, a famous robber who would come across the border from Mexico into Texas and to California and rob the banks and the stagecoaches and then he'd go back. And this particular thief did not know English. All he spoke was Spanish. And they tried, the U.S. Marshals tried as best they could to capture this guy and they to no, accept, to, to no avail and they had no success in doing that. Until finally one day they cornered the guy in El Paso and when they, the U.S. Marshals got him pinned down, they took him to a judge and the judge found a translator because this guy spoke again no English. And so the judge said to the translator, ask the thief where it is that he has hidden all of his money and that if he tells us where he has hidden all of his money, we will not execute him, but we will show him mercy. And so the translator then turns to the thief and says in Spanish all of the things that the judge said, except, except that he changed it. Uh, and, and when he did that, rather, the thief turned around to the translator and said, well, the money is in the building in this city on the wall, the third stone on the left. If you lift the stone, you'll see there's a cavern and everything that I have stolen, every dollar that I've stolen is in that hole. And so the translator, having heard that, turned around to the judge and said to the judge, judge, the thief says he doesn't care what you think about him. He doesn't know, he's not going to give you the money. Go ahead and kill me. And of course, the, the product of that was that the judge, what did he do? He shot the thief. And the guy that was a translator later went by after the judge was gone, the U.S. Marshals were gone, and took the money. And the point is that Charles Swindoll made of this illustration is exactly what I think James is saying, and that is the tongue is something that you and I can use very selfishly at a very quick instant. And so that's the second warning. The Look at verse, verses 3 and 4. The tongue... He says in these two verses, Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they may obey us, and we direct their entire body as well, behold, the ships also, though they are so great, are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. And his point here, and the warning here by James, is very simple and very obvious. And his point is this, that small things direct large objects. I mean, there's nothing profound about that. But I think that James is wanting to remind us just how powerful the tongue can be and how destructive the tongue can be. Job, in Job chapter 19, verse 2, said it this way, How long will you crush me, destroy me with your words? Another writer that I came across, a guy named Morgan Blake, writing for the Atlanta Journal, said this about the tongue. Now, this was a really interesting and insightful quote. And this guy's not a believer, by the way. Listen to what he says about the power of the tongue. He says, I am, a more deadly, I am more deadly than the screaming shell from the howitzer. I win without killing. I tear down homes. I break lives and wreck relationships. I travel on the wings of the wind. No innocence is so strong enough to intimidate me. No purity pure enough to, to, to daunt me. I have no regard for truth, no respect for justice, no mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea and often as innocent. I never forget and I seldom forgive. My name is gossip. I thought that was quite interesting. 
Because this man is an unbeliever and someone that is writing, having observed the political arena, says that one of the most powerful things that exists in all of the world, in all of relationships, in all of the universe, is the power of the tongue. And you know that. I, I certainly know that. You and I have seen paraded before us in the last couple of weeks just how powerful words are. As Judge Thomas sat for hours and hours and hours under investigation and under questioning in his, in his confirmation hearing to find out if what this woman said in her, in her words was really accurate. And the whole nation, just because of one lady having expressed something verbally, the whole nation came to a standstill. And at one time, I think that they said that 60% of all viewers were watching the confirmation hearings. Unbelievable how powerful and how effective one woman's words can be. And that is James's point. The tongue is a very small member, but it has great power to move large objects. Listen to this in, number, in verse 5 as he gives us the fourth, fourth warning. So also, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. How great is a forest, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And I think that the fourth, the fourth warning that James has given us here is this. The trouble with starting the use of your tongue is stopping it. You know that uh, the commercials, the, the th- problem with Lay's potato chips is you just can't, just, you can't eat just one. You've also been familiar with the, the what was it, Procter Gamble, how that a few years ago, maybe you came across this or maybe not, a few years ago that there was a rumor going around that their symbol that they use on the side of their boxes, remember that? That those were the symbol of Satan? And, that, and uh, I don't know if that rumor ever got to you, but it got to me. How many of you ever heard the rumor about uh, the, there were some checks issued prematurely from the government, Social Security checks, and that on there there was a, an explanation that you must either show your number uh, that is printed on the back of your hand or your forehead in, either, in order to cash the checks. How many of you heard that rumor? It, it's just amazing that there is, the power of rumor is incredible. And when they, and Bristol, or Procter Gamble spent billions of dollars in advertising and marketing, try to offset the power of the tongue. And what Bristol, or I keep saying Bristol Meyer, Procter and Gamble concluded was this, that once a rumor starts, you can pour billions, millions, hundreds of thousands of dollars and people hours into stopping the power of the rumor, but you can't do it. Once it's out there, you can't bring it back. It's sort of like taking a, a, as one man said, it's sort of like taking a feather pillow and taking it out into the wind and cutting it up and just and just throwing it into the wind. And that's just the way your words are. Once you start that process, how can you go back and collect all those feathers? It's impossible. And I think that is the warning that James is giving us. You need to be aware of the fact that once you say something about someone and you are doing it falsely, it is nothing but a rumor. It is slander. It is malicious. It is something that has no basis in fact. How are you going to bring that back? You can't do that. Because once a little spark starts and once a fire gets going, you cannot stop it. You have no ability to do that. It's imp- it is practically impossible. And I think that is James's point. We, we just recently in, came across a rumor of, about one of our students. And, it was, and as we tried to pursue, as I tried to pursue with some of our staff, the basis of this rumor, we kept tracing it and tracing it. And it was incredible to us to find out how many of you knew about this. And said, well, now we heard this. I said, well, where did you hear this? He said, well, I heard it from so-and-so. So we'd say, well, let's talk to so-and-so. I mean, this is terrible. 
we need to get to the bottom of this. Either this is true or it's not true. And so we kept pursuing it, and, and it was about a student who was no longer here. Or you say, well, why didn't you go to the student? Because it wasn't someone that was a current student here, and we had no way of getting in contact with him. And so we're pursuing that. It's like, this is amazing. How, how can these people know this? And then when we finally get to the bottom line till we traced all the little appendages and all the little trees back, we found, well, this person says, well, that didn't really happen. I just said, well, what, what if that really happened? What would you think? He said, that didn't take place. And then you're sitting there just sick in your stomach and you're saying, gosh, this guy's reputation, this guy's character has been maligned in front of dozens of people. How in the world are we going to go about now trying to correct that? And guys and gals, that, that is scary. That you could do that to someone. And that you have the power to do that to someone instantly. Because your tongue is so available to your sin and because you live in community here. You turn around to someone and says, well, you know, I think so-and-so probably did this. And then, and you've, you've played that little game in your youth group where you've started with this story and you've whispered it in the ear. And as you get down, the story gets more and more inaccurate, but it gets usually, usually more and more dramatic. Because there's something in the flesh that doesn't like to just repeat something that's boring and it's something that's mundane and everyday. When you hear something, there's something about us that wants to kind of magnify that and kind of give it a little more powerful spin. And when we do that, and you put that together with me doing that, and then I go to you and you do that, and then you take it and you do it to him, and then he does it to her, and then it goes to the dining hall, and then it comes to the, an athletic practice, and then it goes to a teacher, and then it's, it's like, how in the world are we going to call all this back? And I think that is James's point and his warning to all of us. Listen, be very, very careful how you use your tongue. Because once you start that damning process, once you start that process of destruction, you can't bring it back. You can't pull it back. I mean, we can't have everybody stand up in front of us in this, in this gym and, and address every rumor that was ever told on this campus about them so as to either affirm it or deny it. It just is, impract- it is just practically impossible. And what a sober word, I think, for all of us. Because that happens here, unfortunately. It happens that some of you in your dorms and some of you in your classes hear something and you don't go to the person or you don't tell the person who told you to go to the person as much as we should do that. And what you do is rather than going to the person in the biblical pattern, turn around and repeat it. And sometimes not in a vicious manner, in, a, in an intention to destroy the person, but just in a newsy manner, just in a friendly manner. But the damage is done. And so that James is fourth warning. The tongue is something that once it has started... It can't be brought back. Number five, look at verses six and eight. The fifth warning as we try to close this, get to a close this morning. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set, on by our mem- set upon, among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But, verse eight, no one can tame the tongue It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And it's sort of, this is a very similar warning, I think, to the one I just said. And this is what I wrote down here. The tongue has potential. It's not only powerful, but it has potential. And I think this is the warning for great destruction. In 1 Chronicles chapter 19, the princes of Amnon falsely accused David of deceit in order to honor their new king, I think you say it, Hanun. I know maybe Brian Taze, Professor Taze, would straighten me out, straighten me out on my pronunciation here. But in in defense of that 
fearful that David would retaliate against the king, Hanun took his men and he gathered them together, outfit them for, for battle, called the Syrian army together as well, and readied themselves for war against David in fear that he would retaliate against them. All of this started, all this activity and flurry has started simply because of a rumor, a false accusation of David's deceit. And what happened was that situation accelerated until there was an altercation and there was a battle. And the net outcome of it was over 700 charioteers were killed of the Syrian men. And there were over 40,000 soldiers fallen in the field that day. And the commander of the Syrian army was killed as well. Massive destruction. Huge cost of life. And all the result of a rumor. All the result of a false accusation that David had deceived Hanun. Incredible. And I think that is James's point. Please be warned. Please be mindful of how much you can destroy with this little thing right here. It is incredibly powerful, and its power is most seen in its ability to destroy. The uh, writer, one of the writers for the New York Times, a guy named Leslie Gelb, said this, that there is no question that the most powerful force in Washington, D.C. is the tongue. Isn't that interesting? He said, in the right hands at the right time, I'm quoting here, the strategically placed political rumor is perhaps the most subtle and lethal weapon in the arsenal of the Washington bureaucrat. It is definitely part of the serious maneuvering and jockeying for power in Washington. I mean, here again is an unbeliever that says something that James said to us years, centuries before, and that is that one of the most powerful political instruments in all of Washington, D.C. is the tongue. It's not, it's not a building. It's not a caucus. It's not a lobbying group. It's not some special interest group. It is just this little thing. And the key to political success is knowing how to use it to serve you. The tongue is incredibly powerful to destroy. It has great potential to ruin lives. I didn't... didn't um, I ended up not finding the thing that I wanted to bring you this morning at this particular point in my message to read to you, uh, but when I got to this point as I was studying for this, it, it really hit home with me very personally. Some of you know that before I came to, to California, I was an associate pastor in, Cal in Iowa, and in that church in Iowa for four years, we had some really difficult things to face, and one of the things that I had faced uh, after the senior pastor resigned and myself and two other men became the leaders of the church uh, was the discipline of a deacon and his wife, and this was a, a very well-established church that was from a Baptist tradition and they had never in their 90-year history ever, deacon, or ever disciplined a deacon, ever disciplined any church leader. And so when we were facing the prospect of exercising biblical discipline on this person and his wife, it was a very fearful thing for us because we had never been through I had never been through that. So we bought J. Carl Laney's book on church discipline, which some of you are familiar with. We got different articles on church discipline. How do we do this in the right way? What is the attitude that we should have? What is the process that we should follow? I called out because I'd been to a shepherd's conference. I called out the Grace Church. I talked to Jay Letty. I talked to Jim George. I talked to Gary Ezzo. I talked to Fred Barshaw. And I said, guys, you know, this is really a scary situation. Well, how do we handle this? And so they would, they would walk us through it and tell us how we were to, to biblically, in the right attitude, pursue church discipline with this person and his wife, this deacon and his wife. And we did that. And as they warned us, and all these men warned us, the, the thing that they warned us of actually happened, and that is that the whole church leadership team of 24 deacons turned against the three pastors. And it became a really a knockdown, drag-out fight. 
And in that one meeting, my wife and I, uh, my wife was waiting at home, and I went Wednesday night to a meeting that took place after our prayer meeting, which was kind of ironic as we all met together and prayed together. We went to a meeting right after that, and the deacons just ripped us to pieces and told us about how we were not godly men and, and how that we were in sin and how dare we accuse another person of, of sin and what right do we have to tell someone else that they're not right with God? Are we perfect? Uh, he who is without sin cast the first stone. I mean, they, they just heaped guilt upon us. And when I went home from that meeting, my wife says, well, how did it go? And I said, well, I'm calling the realtor in the morning, so that probably gives you an idea. I think it's just going to be a matter of time that we're either going to be fired or they're going to make it so bad on us we're going to have to leave. Well, I didn't get fired, but the latter did happen. The deacon that we pursued discipline with began to boycott the messages when I would preach or when one of the, when one of the other pastors would preach. And he wouldn't just sit outside the service in the lobby as people would come in. He had letters and brochures that he had gotten together and about us and would pass them out to the people. So it was kind of a weird situation. It, it, now I look back and I kind of think it was funny, but at the time I was not laughing. When the people would come in the church, you know how you'd walk into church and you know people would shake your hands and hand you a bulletin? That's what we were doing. People would come in, they'd open the church doors and they were greeted by people handing them bulletins. But then right after they got a bulletin, they got a letter about me and about the other pastor, about how we were in sin and how that we were taking the church away from biblical Christianity, and how that we were not Baptists, and how that we were this and that and the other. And then finally, he put together one letter that was single-spaced, three pages long, of 74 accusations against me and against this other man. And in those 74 accusations, there were things such as he denies the deity of Jesus Christ. He denies the inspiration of the Word of God. And there were some funny things that were kind of ridiculous as well. One of the things that he accused me of that said that was an indication of my apostasy was that I allowed a Grace Brethren church to be part of our volleyball league in the Baptist League. And he thought that was really wicked as well. So there were some funny things. But for the most part, it was real serious stuff. The letter had been circulating for some time before I found it and heard about it. And by the time I had gotten a copy of the letter, I didn't have any idea how many people in the church had seen this thing. 74 accusations of how I and this other pastor had denied the faith. I had never, ever had anything like that happen to me. I mean, I had people not like what I do. I mean, you do that now, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm used to that. I've, had, I've, I've, I've done things and people not like what I say. I've done things and people not like what I do. You know, you do a youth activity and, I mean, and Dewey tells all those guys, I'm sure, in class, I mean, the fact is, you can't please everybody all the time. And there's going to be some people you can't please ever, no matter what you do. And if Jesus Christ came down and held a youth rally, they would complain about him as well because he spoke too long or his hair was too long or they didn't like his Birkenstocks. Whatever it might be, you're never going to please everybody. And that's the way, and I know that that is true, but I had never, and I don't know if you've experienced this, I have never, up to that point in my life, ever had another Christian or professing Christian take that much energy and that much thought and that much dedication to the destruction of my character. I had never had that happen. I mean, that was a a hard, hard thing. And my wife tells me now, looking back on it, she said, Dave, you went through a major personality transformation during that time. She said, I don't even think I was aware of it at the time. And I know you weren't aware of it. But the way that impacted you and the destruction that did in your heart and ministry and even in your personality was incredible. And and this was verified just recently when my wife and I took our 11-year anniversary. We flew to Hawaii. And we met met another couple in Hawaii that flew from Iowa. And when they got to Hawaii and spent two weeks with us, 
at the end of that time, the couple turned around and said, we want to talk to you, Dave. And I said, well, what's, what is it? And they sat down with us very seriously and said, Dave, man, you're a different person. You're a different person. Because when you were with us, man, you, were, you were not, didn't have any of this freedom. You didn't have any of this joy. You didn't have any of this that we're seeing in your life now. You seem excited about life. That wasn't the person we saw in Iowa. And Kim said, I think it was the letter and the effects of it. James's fifth warning, guys and gals, the tongue can destroy people very quickly and very thoroughly. The last warning, let me give it to you, the sixth warning as we close this morning. The tongue is capable of great hypocrisy. And that's what James says in verses 9 and 10. With it we bless our Lord and our Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. And from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. James's last warning is this. You need to be aware that your mouth is capable of great ministry. And that same mouth coming from the same person is at the is also capable of great destruction. And you say, well, why did he give us this warning? I think that I think it's something that, that we all need to be reminded of because you and I sometimes get so involved in great things that Mark Tatlock plans. And you get involved in great things and discussions in your classes. And you get great grades and you're, in, you're involved in Bible studies, the Master's Challenge, and other types of ministries in your local churches. And, and because of all this good stuff, sometimes we think, well, life is kind of like a like a little scale, like a little balancing scale. that You put enough good things over here and it kind of outweigh the bad things. And, and, and boy, I've got a lot of good things over here. And, and because you've got so many good things piled up, it lulls you to sleep and kind of in a subtle way kind of makes you insensitive to the way you use your tongue, particularly in normal relationships. Right? Particularly in your relationship with people you see all the time, like your roommate all the time like your boyfriend or girlfriend, all the time like your RA or your teacher. It is in those very, very common, mundane, everyday type of relationships that sometimes we're not even aware of how badly we speak and how destructively we use our tongue. And James wants to call us back to an awareness that, look, you need to be reminded that your tongue is capable of great hypocrisy. And then he goes one step beyond that, I think, in in chapter 1, verse 26. And that hypocrisy makes everything that you're doing for the Lord dead and worthless. Look, Look what he says there. He says, and if anyone thinks himself to be religious, and I just described earlier what religious means, and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. And that man's religion is what? Worthless. James says, look, you need to be aware of something. That one thing that the tongue can communicate very clearly to the world around you, to believers and unbelievers alike, is your hypocrisy. And if that is what your tongue is doing, then what it is in effect doing, it is cutting off the life of all this effort that you're giving to God. It makes all of your ministry, all of your dedication, all of your energy, all of your devotion, all of your discipline worthless. Because the hypocritical tongue gives a lie to all this other good stuff that you say. And you can talk and talk and talk and talk, but people look at you and they say, well, wait a second, is this the same person who said this in the wing? I'm not going to go to the Master's Challenge and hear a devotion from this person because I heard them address their roommate and the names that they called them. I'm not going to do that. 
James says, it's going to make all of your ministry worthless. When I was in uh, seminary, one of my hobbies is, is rebuilding engines in cars. I don't do it anymore. It's an expensive hobby. When I was in seminary, I worked as a longshoreman, was making good money, and, and, I, and I was able to rebuild a couple of antique cars. One of the cars I rebuilt was a T-Bird. And I took the T-Bird and I stripped it down to the very frame. I mean, it was, only, it was sitting in my yard on blocks, no wheels, no motor, no interior, no carpet. I took the thing all the way down to the frame and rebuilt it. And took a whole summer to do it. And my wife will tell you, because she worked that summer, and, and that was one of the reasons I found this project, that I spent every waking moment either working as a longshoreman or on this car. And it really got out of whack in my life. I, it got to be too important to me. I mean, I was ordering magazines and trade journals, and I was joining T-Bird clubs. and I mean, it, was, it really got to be ridiculous. And, but I was really into this T-Bird. And I took all summer long, day and night, to put this thing back together in a perfect manner. And one thing, part of the car that I spent the most time on was the engine. Because there's just something that I enjoy about sitting behind a car that's got 400 plus horsepower and trying to get it down the interstate as quickly as I can. There's just something in my, my pre-Adam state, or my pre-Christ state that still makes that attractive to me. And so I put all this money in this engine, this 390 engine, and was all, and was, took it and had it, and if you know what that means, it had it blueprinted, and I had the thing bored over 60 thousandths of an inch, and I had the dome pistons put on it, and I had the high performance rings put on it, I had these solid lifters put on it, an oversized cam. I had all this stuff put in this engine so that I would have the most powerful T-Bird of this style on the road. And I spent the entire summer doing it. And then one evening, when I was out there looking at the engine, you know that there are little plugs, freeze plugs that are in the side of an engine that are supposed to expand when the, when the engine gets cold, it allows the engine to expand and contract. Well, one of those freeze plugs got stuck and it got down below, it got really cold as we went into the fall, rather, into September, and it was really a weird thing in Washington and it froze that night. And I didn't plan on it. Never even thought about the freeze plug. Who in Washington State thinks about getting down to freezing? I mean, it never happens like that. And this freeze plug stuck and the block, and the block of the engine cracked. And I mean, the, the crack was like, I mean, it was like two or three inches long. And you could barely see it. But that little crack made that entire project vain and worthless. And I couldn't even sell the car. I almost literally had to give the thing away. Because nobody wanted my beautiful looking car that had a bum engine in it. I mean, it looked pretty. You opened the hood and all the chrome and all the paint. But it had this little crack. And I had to tell the people, Hey, I'm sorry, my, my car's got a crack in the engine. Well, I don't want that. And I think that's the same thing that James is saying. Look, you can do all this good stuff. You can be involved in missions conference. You can be involved in summer ministry. You can be involved in leading devotions in your wing. You can be involved in Bible classes and other classes around the campus. You can get a degree in, in, in ministry and, or, or in one of your vocations and go out and try to do great things for the Lord. But if you don't have your tongue under control and in a way that it is glorifying Jesus Christ, you're going to be like that little crack in the block of my engine. And it's going to make all of your effort worthless. Guys and gals, please take serious these warnings. Please look at your life. Look at the way you're treating your, your roommates. Look at the way you're treating your classmates. Look at the way you're addressing people who, have, who are older and who are in positions of authority. Look at that very closely and ask yourself, am I honoring the Lord with the way I use my tongue? Let's pray together. Father, just thank you for your word. Lord, help us to be mindful of just how, how reflective of our heart is, is the way we use our tongue. Lord, help us today 
if we need to go into someone that's in this room or someone that's in our family or someplace else and to ask their forgiveness because of the way we've talked about them or the way we've addressed them, Lord, help us to do that. Give us strength to do that. Lord, help us to please You in all that we do. Lord, we want to do that. We desire that so desperately. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.